Praise God. There is no favor without the Lamb. There is no favor without the cross. There is no favor without repentance. It is by His mercy and grace that we're here. And Lord, we ask here today, we pray for your presence to work mightily, for you to be with us and flow through us. Transform us, Lord, into what you will. We are your clay. We submit into your hands everything that we are. You are the potter. Shape us. We love you and we thank you. And we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, band. Hallelujah. Well, welcome, everyone. Welcome. It's great to see you. And the church is continually filling up. This is so wonderful to see. So wonderful. And I've been, I've been taking you and all the youth, yes, all the youth and children, they know you can go right away. You can go downstairs. I've been going through the Beatitudes, but really what I'm doing is I'm going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount for the next little while with you when, when I'm up here. And it's such an important part of the Gospels. And... It comes right off. I mean, this song was, was so appropriate. You know, here's Jesus penetrating this world as a babe. And in Matthew, we see, you know, his genealogy, you know, showing us that this was, this was planned. He came here as a babe, was born. You know, the wise men came. The same wise men who were probably influenced or taught by somehow through, through Daniel's reign in the office that he had, that he was given after the exile. And then they tried to, to kill him when Herod ordered all the children to be killed and they fled to Egypt and he came back. And then, all of a sudden, he shows up. He shows up. And when he shows up, we see, we see something interesting happening here at just before the Sermon on the Mount. We see in Matthew chapter 3, verse 2, we see John the Baptist making this declaration. He says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven is here. And then Jesus is baptized. We just talked about this downstairs. He was baptized. Into the waters he went and out of the waters he came. And here, here's, here's an interesting thing. Jesus repeats that at the end of the same chapter in Matthew 3.17. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You see, it went from John to Jesus 
And Jesus would only ever say that statement once again when he sends out the 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you see, this is right at the beginning when the Sermon on the Mount is about to begin. And here is Jesus. He calls his disciples. And at the beginning of chapter 5, seeing the crowds, he went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He went up to the mountain. And for the next couple of chapters, Jesus just teaches. Just teaches. And one of the most important things that he's ever taught that really defines who we are is the Beatitudes. It is the rewiring. When we talk about transformation, the Beatitudes is rewiring of everything that we know and think how we should think, how we should behave. It's completely countercultural, back then and even today. Some of it is nonsense. But that's what the Bible says. The wisdom of man is foolishness to God, and God's wisdom is foolishness to men. But that's what the Beatitudes teach us. That's what the Beatitudes teach us. And we... We actually went through the first section of the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes come with nine statements of blessing. Some people say there are eight plus one. You know, let's not get into the semantics of this. There are nine statements that say blessed. And in the last sermon I gave, these were the first three, is blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And I'd just like to go quickly over that, recap before I proceed to the next three Beatitudes. Because what does it mean to be poor in spirit? We talked about that. It means to recognize our spiritual poverty. It means that really... In comparison to God, we are nothing. Even after being saved and God actually changing us and us being on the right path, we are still poor spiritually. And the difference between us and those who aren't saved in terms of God's love for this world is negligible if nothing. He loves the sinner as he loves the saint. And our sin after salvation isn't less of a sin than before salvation. And if we think that after we've been saved or been a Christian for 10, 20, or 30 years that our sin is less impactful, that's right, no. It's the same. It's the same. Yes, the consequences are different, but it's the same. And so when when Jesus was saying being poor in spirit, it really means that we must surrender with humility knowing that even after salvation, we still struggle with sin and we are still poor in spirit. And that only comes if we're meek, if we're humble, if we truly understand what it is that took 
to come to my salvation, to your salvation, what Jesus had to do to save us. When we're poor in spirit and we're meek, we're willing to accept. We're willing to accept the fact that we are so, so far from anything that we can do to come close to God. Nothing that we can do can bring us any closer to God. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It is only through Christ. Only through him. And then when we start to realize that, the first three Beatitudes don't call us to judge, don't call us to cower, but we read to mourn, just as Paul mourned when the churches had sin in them and strife. We're not to judge. And that's the big difference, right? We see this in the Bible. The Pharisees were always quick to judge. The law says this and you must do that. Why do you do this on Saturday? What do the Beatitudes teach us? Mourn. When somebody falls, mourn. When your brother or sister falls, mourn. Don't judge. Mourn for them. That is the way that Jesus taught us. Remember when he entered Jerusalem? He mourned for Jerusalem. He mourned. And so today, with this background, I'd like to take us into the next three Beatitudes. But before I go there, there's a story um, that just happened about a month ago. And it really captures the essence of what the next three Beatitudes are trying to get at. And we all know about the conflict that's happening in Ukraine. And Bakhmut, slowly, the Russians are starting to take over that city. But at very, very high cost. And it, it seems like to me that, you know, the Ukrainian army is doing this on purpose, really trying to wear down the Russians, and the Russians that keep coming, and they keep coming. And the Russians have done some pretty horrible things. I'm sure the Ukrainians have too, but we... We've seen quite a lot coming from the Russian side, the beheading, right, the torturing. There's been a lot. And in Bakhmut, there is a general. They call him K2. And they, all the soldiers in Bakhmut actually wear the general's call symbol, K2. And he's been fighting that battle ever since with his soldiers, and they're hardened, hardened. They've seen the worst of it. They've been fighting the Russians even before the invasion of Russia in that region. So they've seen atrocities for years. They've been involved in it for years. And there was, in, in the battle, there was, one, there was one situation in that battle where the Russians had come in and taken over some trenches. And they knew that they had to clear that area. But they were held up in there tightly. And so the general sent in one of the tanks, and the tank went in and kept, kept throwing in, you know, round after round into those trenches and blowing up those Russians in those trenches, but it wasn't getting all of them. And so, you know, the, the, 
the Russians couldn't escape. They, they were too far away from other Russian soldiers to come. And, and the tank, the Ukrainian tank, was trying to kill them all and just trying to blow them all up, trying to blow them up. And they ran out of ammunition. And when they ran out of ammunition, the tank commander said to K2, who is the commander, I'm running out of ammunition and they're throwing anti-tank um, gren anti grenades at me. Can I run them over? And the general said yes. And so you see this tank, and there's this video online of this tank coming in over the trench and just plowing into the trenches where the Russians are, just to crush them, back and forth, over and over again, until there was no movement. And so the tank came out, went back, and so the general sent in a battalion of Ukrainians just to make sure that all the Russians were dead. And so all they saw was these trenches that were collapsed. And then the general said, go look for the Russians. Did you catch that? Go in there, dig them out, and see if they're any alive. They found one. They cleaned him up. Yes, they took him prisoner but they brought him back. You see, this general, who had fought so hard for so many years and seen so many atrocities, still had it in his heart to order his troops, even after that battle, to see if there was anybody alive. He could have just left them buried, that one soldier buried in that trench, but he chose not to. He chose not to. What did he show at that point in time? What did he show at that point in time? Well, in the Bible, Jesus talks about a, the opposite of what I just told you. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, and the parable goes like this. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all he had and payment to be made. You got to understand that 10,000 talents is huge. It's a huge sum of money. Probably in our day, it's millions of dollars. And the king had a right, and this was normal practice, guys. The king had a right to confiscate him and his family and his children and sell them off and any other assets he had to at least get something. It's like what, we, what happens in bankruptcy today. But in our laws... They at least protect your personal property, your home. But in those days, nothing was protected, not even you. They had the right to sell you off. And so this is what happens. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him 
and forgave him the debt. Again, someone who didn't have to, had the power to, but chose not to. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me. I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. He forgot so easily of how he had been given, forgiven so much. Isn't that true? We sometimes fall into that trap. We've been forgiven so much, and yet when a little is done to us, we tend to have a hard time to forgive the little. When the fellow servants saw what they had ta- what taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had happened. Then the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And this is a story that is in direct contrast to the one I told you about that general on Bakhmut. And this is key, key for the next area of the Beatitudes we're going to be studying. And you see, the Beatitudes are completely different. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he, he, really, he really brings this out about what Jesus is trying to do. And, he, and in 1 Peter 2, 11, it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. It's not just sexual desires, it's everything. The way you think, the way you behave. Do you forgive people, don't you? In other translations, it says foreigners. It says we are foreigners. We are exiles. We are strangers. Temporary residents in this world. Pilgrims. Paul also called us ambassadors. An ambassador is someone who's foreign to a country. You are an alien people. You are. The Bible actually calls you aliens. There's a translation which you're aliens. You are not from this world. The day that you were saved, you now belong to a different kingdom. You are no longer part of this kingdom. The kingdom of men and the kingdom of this world. You are now part of the kingdom of heaven. You are exiles here now. You are not here for yourselves anymore. And this is where we start now with the Beatitudes. The fourth Beatitude. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Let's start with hunger and thirst for righteousness. 
What is righteousness? What is righteousness? Righteousness is being right with God. Without blame, without sin, without blemish. And you see, you cannot achieve that with works, with the law. We cannot achieve that by how we dress, how we come to church. We cannot achieve this by how much effort we, we put in to not to sin. The rules we make in life, you know, I, I'm not going to watch any movie that is not PG or, or more. You know, whatever rules you create in life to, to guide yourself, that doesn't make you righteous. I'm not saying they're bad rules to follow, but that does not make you righteous. Not before God. And you see, back then, they thought that by having laws that, that basically guide your life, I'll hang out with these people, but not those. I'll do these kind of things, but not those. They thought that was righteousness. But what Jesus was saying is, do you thirst and hunger for righteousness? Do you see that? Do you thirst? You know why? Because it actually, in the translation, it says, I thirst and I hunger. Do you say that? Do you feel that? You see, just like being poor in spirit, when you thirst for righteousness, when you thirst for hunger, that means that you know that there is none inside you. You are not capable of being righteous. You cannot be righteous. You cannot lead a righteous life. In fact, because of how we're brought up, and you see the craziness that happens in schools today, the kind of stuff they're taught, It's getting worse and worse, the way culture operates. There is so much programming that goes on in our life and around us. You've heard of this many times from me. That, that, that science has already determined that 70 to 90% of all your decisions that you make every day happens automatically, subconsciously, without even thinking. You are programmed. That's what Jesus was talking about. You can either be a slave to the world where you're pre-programmed to make 90% of your decisions based on what they say and what happens around you, what you're taught, or you choose to surrender and be transformed by the Spirit. Amen. Hungering, thirsting for righteousness means that you know that there is nothing inside of you that makes you righteous before God. He is perfect. Only, only God is perfect. That is what thirsting for righteousness is. That is what Jesus is trying to get us to understand, that when we start with understanding how we lack righteousness, when we lack what it takes to stand before God, when we thirst for it, when we hunger for it. Do you ever be so hungry? Ever been so hungry so hungry that it hurts. <laughs> so thirsty that it's so dry in your mouth you can't even speak. 
That is the kind of thirst and hunger Jesus is saying here. An inner desire to want to be always right before God. Every day, every hour, every second, I thirst and hunger for that righteousness. And you see, the beatitude goes hunger and thirst for righteousness. For why? So that you will be satisfied. You see, if you don't have this hunger, if you don't have this desire, this, this immense thirst for who he is, you cannot be satisfied. And the word satisfied means being full, filled, complete. But you cannot be completely filled You cannot receive the righteousness completely unless you thirst and hunger for it. Not just the first time, but on an ongoing basis every day of our lives. It's not just a one-time thing when we accept Jesus Christ. It's not just a one-time thing when you go to be baptized. It is an ongoing thirst and hunger. It's like always never having enough. Do we live that way? Because that's what Jesus is. Do we live knowing that we need more righteousness and that we can't get it ourselves? And this is where it gets strange because when you look at the Beatitudes, the way that you would look at how they structure things in threes, you see it goes righteousness, mercy, and pure in heart. What you do is the center one is the one that you focus on, but you start with the first, then you go to the third, then you go to the second. It's a pattern that they use in in Old Testament and New Testament writings. And so, you go from righteousness right down to blessed are the pure in heart. You cannot be pure in heart unless you are righteous. Do you understand that? That is what Jesus is writing. You cannot be pure in heart. You cannot be pure before God. You cannot be clean without sin, standing before God, unless you thirst and hunger for righteousness. Because it's only through thirsting and hungering for righteousness can you be satisfied. And that starts on the day that you accept the Lord Jesus and it must continue every day of our lives. Every day. It's an ongoing thing. And if you're not pure in heart, what does it say? You won't see God. Only the pure in heart shall see God. But it starts with the hunger. A hunger that cannot be satisfied by anything in this world, by anything that you do, by anything that anybody says. You see, even the words I speak here today, God is guiding me. But the most important thing is the spirit that's in you. It is the spirit that's in you as I'm speaking that brings righteousness. Faith comes by hearing, but it's a spirit inside of you that makes that faith real. Not the words in and of themselves. They're useless without the spirit. And that's where righteousness comes from. And you see, if we've never hungered and thirst, then we can never really understand what it means to be satisfied because we really don't understand what sin is. We really don't understand what it does to us and what its magnitude is. And I, I confess this to you. You know, I was 
I was a good Catholic, you know? I was a very good Catholic. You know, being brought up, we went to church, and sometimes it was Portuguese church, still there, where I, I still, the Portuguese church where I got baptized uh, as a child, as an infant, is still there on Bathurst Street. And every year, the Portuguese still do their marches downtown. And the church where I did my communion and my, my confirmation is still there on Dundas Street. Right by Trinity Park. Still there. I drive by it sometimes. Still remember. I was a good Catholic, you know. I, uh, I went to church on Christmas and Easter every year. <laughs> I showed up to weddings, you know, to listen to the priest. And once in a while, I went to confession. Once in a while, I went to confession, especially when I felt the accumulation of guilt. I would go down to the one on Dundas, you know, that was the one closest to me because I lived in the West End. And, and, and I've told you the story. I went in, you know, there's the booth, you know, light is on, okay, there's a guy in there. I walk in, open the curtain, close the curtain. He says, I forget what he says. And that's when I tell him all the things I've done. So I don't know how long I was in there, but I was in there for a while. <laughs> I was in there for a while. And then he pauses. I guess he was waiting to see if I had finished. And he goes, okay, go say 50 Hail Marys and 40 Our Fathers. I said, okay. I go, there's nobody in the church. Okay, that's good. You know, I'd be very embarrassed because I might be here a long time. But it only took me a few, and I'm going, this, something's wrong. Something's wrong with this. I wasn't a Christian, but deep down inside, I knew something was wrong with this. I knew that me repeating prayer up to 90 times, I mean, why was 90 important, not 30 or 150 or something like that? Why why 90? You know, maybe, you know, I'm kind of curious now that I'm up here. I've got to ask the priest, why did you choose 90? You know, 40 of this, 50 of that. But I walked out of that church and never went back to church again. Never did. It just felt wrong. It felt wrong. And that began my journey. I didn't know, but today I know that began my journey. And it took another seven, eight years before that time till the time that I accepted the Lord. But I started to, I started to realize something was wrong. I started to become thirsty. At first it was just a little bit. I was just a little thirsty. And as life's stuff started to happen, I became more thirsty and more hungry. And it wasn't until I realized how beautiful God is and how nothing I could do could make up for all that I've done. All the stuff that I went through in high school as a young adult, all the junk I did, the people I hurt, you know. None of it could be overcome. None of it. Except through Jesus Christ. 
except through him. And that is, that is hungering and thirsting. That is hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And then I knew what it meant to be pure in heart because it wasn't because of me, but because of him who died on the cross for me. And that is, that's when you become pure in heart. And you see, only when you have this thirst and hunger, and I learned, you know, that you go through this honeymoon euphoria, you know, I learned that, you know, that that can wear off. And I learned that, no, I have to continue to hunger and thirst. I do. Because my struggles didn't finish after I was saved, after I was baptized. I knew that that hunger and thirst was a lifelong pursuit. Because every day in the heat of this world, I needed to seek God. I needed to thirst for him. I need to be satisfied by the food that he has to offer. You know, communion is such a beautiful thing because it's only through him and what he did and his blood can our righteousness be the righteousness that can stand before God. His righteousness in us. And when we walk like this, that is when we start to understand mercy. You see, just like the king, he had every right to take them as slaves and sell them off. But the servant, servant didn't want righteousness. The servant wanted selfishness. Hey, I can just see it. Hey, honey, wow, I just saved us from getting uh, sold off into slavery and we don't owe the king a dime. And you know what? I know a few people who owe us some money and I'm going to go out and get it so that we can live life large. Taking advantage of the goodness of the king. That is an understanding mercy. Mercy is when you have the power to do harm, when you have the power to judge, when you have the power or the freedom to judge, the freedom to say something against somebody rightfully. Nobody would ever, you know, not expect it of you. But mercy is when you hold back. Mercy is when somebody says something to you and they deserve a tongue lashing back and you hold back. You know? Mercy is when that general could have left that guy die buried, but he sent his soldiers in to grab him. And you can't understand mercy unless you have a pure heart. And you can't understand what it means to have a pure heart because you know you could never achieve it yourself until you thirst and hunger for righteousness. Amen? And you can never thirst and hunger for righteousness if you don't know what it means to be poor in spirit. Do you see that? Yes. Do you see how it works? Romans 3.10. And some people might get confused with this. So they'll say, well, the Bible says none is righteous, right? Verse 10 says none is righteous for all have sinned. 
Well, verse 25, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Propitiation is what? It is a satisfaction of God's wrath and judgment on us by his blood. Another word, the Greek word for this is also means mercy. You see, we have received mercy by the blood of Christ. That is what? Received by faith. It goes on to say, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, you know what divine forbearance means? It means in his patience. His patience. His patience. He is patient with us. Isn't he patient with us? Yeah. Oh my goodness, is he patient with us? He's patient with me. Yeah. From the time that I walked out of that church, after realizing that sitting there, saying that, those prayers 90 times repeatedly, he patiently guided me over the eight years or so to the point where I accepted him. I realize that now, looking back at his mercy and his forbearance in my life and in your life and in our lives. And it goes on in verse 26 to say, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. He is just and he is the justifier. He is the only one who is just. He is the only one. And guess what? And he's also the only one that can be the justifier. The only one. No other God, no other religion, no other system. Not the law, nothing. Only Christ, and in Christ. There are no works. You can't be the nicest person. In fact, I can tell you that sometimes we judge outwardly. I, I, I remember I used to have a boss and uh, I always thought he was angry and mean. I did. I always thought he was angry and mean. It was my first boss. My first boss. He was always grumpy. Always grumpy. I thought he didn't like me. And then there was another time I had a boss who was always nice to me, thought they loved me. You know what I learned? The guy that was super nice to me talked behind my back, and the guy that was always grumpy and mean to me actually liked me. That was just his nature. But I couldn't see on the inside who he was. So sometimes outward appearances don't mean anything. And I tell you, You, if you had known me when I was 18 or 20, you might have been scared of me. And when you had known me when I was, after I was saved, I'd be less scary, but I, I was still kind of a hard-nosed business type guy. 
And by the time I was in my late 20s, I'd softened up a bit, but I was a driver. You know, like I was, you know, I'm a businessman. We're here to make money. It's profit loss, you know. This is my boss. I'm a Christian. We got to do what's got to be done. If you don't like it, there's the door. I remember saying that sometimes. You don't like it, there's the door. I was saved. I was a Christian. You see, this is a process that we go through. And it doesn't happen overnight. But I continued to thirst. And I continued to hunger. And now, when I have to make the hard choice to let somebody go, I actually cry. I get down on my my knees and I weep. Because even if they deserved what they got for whatever they did, I know that that person's going to suffer, that that family's going to suffer, and I have no choice. You see, that is what a lifetime of seeking and thirsting after righteousness does. It molds us. It transforms us. We're not the same person we were 10 years ago. Does that make me more righteous? Absolutely not. The fact that I'm kinder when I have to fire somebody does not make me more righteous. I am sorry to say, same outcome. I just understand God's mercy now more than I did before. And that is the big difference. Francis of Assisi, um, he didn't start off as a priest. Before he became a priest and before he wrote a lot of, of the literature that we sometimes read and quote, there was a moment that he came to a sudden understanding of that type of righteousness. It says in, in a book that was written about him, he was between the lure of wealth and glory and the life of discipleship. You see, he was, he was struggling. Should I commit my life to God or should I continue on the life I've got? And you can tell by the fact that he was riding a horse. You know, back then, if you had a horse, you, you, you had a lot of money. It's like owning a Ferrari because most people walked. As he rode along, he was absorbed in his thoughts. Suddenly, the horse jerked to the side of the road. With difficulty, Francis pulled him back on course. But as Francis looked up, he recoiled at the sight of a leper in the middle of the road. He was a gray specter with stained face and shaved head, dressed in gray sackcloth. He did not speak, and he showed no sign of moving or getting out of the way. He looked at the horseman fixed, strangely, with an acute and penetrating gaze. You see, there's Francis on a horse. There's a leper. And you've got to understand that in those times, if you were a leper, you had to get out of the way. In fact, Francis had the right at that point in time to say, you have to get off the road because you have a disease and I don't want it and by the law you have to get out of my way 
If Francis really wanted to, he could have had the horse just charge through and run him over. And nobody would have said anything because he broke the law. And Francis had the right to not be put at risk. Here's what it says. An instant that seemed an eternity passed. Slowly, Francis dismounted, went to the man, and took his hand. It was a poor, emaciated hand, blood-stained and cold like that of a corpse. Francis pressed the hand and brought it to his lips. As he kissed the lacerated flesh of the creature, who was the most abject, the most hated, the most scorned of all human beings, he was flooded with a wave of emotion that shut out everything around him. It taught him that following Christ may require doing some things that repulse us. You see, when we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we are brought to those moments in our life. What will we do? What decisions will we make? You see, Francis at that time, on the horse, I am most assured that was touched by the Spirit to get down off his horse. And he was on a path just like I was on a path, just like you were on a path. And when we hunger and thirst every day, we begin to see how poor in spirit we are and how we need mercy and how we need to seek righteousness. <laughs> Let me read Paul. He says it perfectly. 1 Timothy 1.16. Actually, it's 1.13 to 17, actually. Timothy 1, 1 Timothy 1.13 to 17. Listen to what Paul says. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the kings of the ages, immortal, invincible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. You see, Paul realized, like he's writing this years after. Years. Writing, writing letters to Timothy. And he still knows what it was like. He still knows where he came from. Oh, he knows he's not the old man anymore. He knows that. But his hunger and thirst hasn't been quenched completely. Remember, it's Paul says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? That came from Paul. Paul admittedly was saying that it is a struggle to continue to be righteous. And we are never going to get it be perfect. We're never going to get it right. We won't. And if we do, we've got it wrong, people. We'll never be perfect on this earth by any means possible. 
Oh, I don't go out to bars anymore and I don't smoke up anymore. I don't swear every second sentence. Does that make me perfect and better? No, not at all. Not at all. You see, there is an example, actually a beautiful example, of when you start to be transformed and when really those moments come, like Francis of Assisi, what you can do as a person, but what we can do as a community, as a church. There was... You know, we've, we've heard about shootings in the States, but there, this, one was, this one was quite remarkable. It was about an Amish community. And you see, there was, this, there was this guy by the name of Charles Roberts, and he wasn't Amish, but he would deliver milk to this Amish community every day. And every day, he would meet the families, he'd go by the school where the children are, and he deliver milk. It's going on year after year after year. Then one day, it just took one day, he snapped. And that one day, just like here in what we saw here in, in Montreal, he went into the children's preschool room and he started shooting. It was a class of 10 young girls. Five died, five survived, and then he shot himself. Nobody knows why. Nobody really knows why. But this is what happened. This is what happened. And this, I quote, from an article online, I think the most powerful demonstration of the depth of Amish forgiveness was when members of the Amish community went to the killer's burial service at the ceremony. Several families, Amish families who had buried their own daughters just the day before were in attendance. And they hugged the widow and hugged other members of the killer's family. You see, the Amish community had every right to not even be at the funeral, to say, how could a man like that ever do that to us? What kind of family did he come from? What kind of wife did he have? His children must be horrible. Who would want to be part of that household? They had every right, and even in the States, every right to take them to court and sue them for whatever they had. but they showed up at his funeral. And it didn't stop there. The Amish community then donated money to the killer's widow and her three young children. You see, I'm not saying all Amish communities are like that. But what this Amish community did 
is they showed that they're no better than they are. And that they need God just as much as they are, no matter how terrible a thing was done to them. And that now, because of their view of the poor in spirit situation that they're in, and how they realize the righteousness of God. And you see, we sometimes look at the outward and say, oh, you know, this is an Amish community. They're like, you know, the Old Testament Jews, you know. They're all about the laws and everything because they, they choose to live the way they do without, you know, all the pleasures in life. I don't think a community could do with that, what they did if they didn't have Christ in them. Yes, they choose to live like that. It's a choice they make to show their commitment to God, but they know that that life is not what makes them right before God. And they showed up at the funeral, and they gave money to the widow, despite, and these were the same families that lost their daughters. You see, Romans 9, 22 and 23 says, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? He's talking about us in verse 22. We are the vessels destined for destruction, no matter how good we try to make ourselves in this life. But him, in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. I'll leave you with one last verse, James 2, chapter 2, verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one, to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment you see if we are to receive mercy we have to be merciful and what Jesus is trying to teach us is this is how we should live we need to be pure in heart we need to be hunger after righteousness You know, has your thirst been satisfied? Has it? I tell you, it will never be. But if you give up, if you give up, you'll never understand what it is to be merciful. It's a paradox. Do you see that? Every day we strive for it, but we could never achieve it. But we actually get a taste of it every day. It's almost like we don't get the entire jar of honey, but we get little drops every day. And we see how sweet it is because we know how perfect Jesus is. Jesus is the honey. And we'll never achieve it until the day we are with him. Either when he comes or we go to be with him. And here's the beautiful thing. That even in our unrighteousness right now as we stand here, the Father sees us as righteous through Jesus. And so we hunger and thirst for Jesus every day. That's exactly what we need to do.
And so here's my challenge today. Here's my challenge. My challenge for all of us today, and Ben, please, you can come up. My challenge for all of us today is to seek Jesus every day with such hunger, with such thirst, with such desire that it actually hurts to not have him in, in your mind, in your consciousness, in your every day of being for every second. Oh, I've gone an hour without even thinking about him. I've gone half a day at work without even realizing, you know, that I'm here and, and Jesus is right here and the Spirit is with me. That is thirsting. That is being hungry. Thirsting and being hungry isn't going in the morning to work and then coming home, you know, and praying in the morning and then praying at night and everything in between is just a forgotten time frame. That is not hungering and thirsting. Hungering and thirsting means that when I'm on the TTC, yeah, I go and take the TTC to work. When I'm on the TTC, I hunger and thirst for Jesus. When I see people around me who I don't know but have this look on their face that they're struggling, I mourn. Lord, who can I pray for right now as I'm on this train? When I'm at work and I'm on the keyboard sending out an email that I'm not too happy about, I stop myself. Lord, I need you. I need you. When I'm at home, I come home. Maybe you had a great day. Great, you come home. I know when I come home and I've had a real tough day, had a bad day with the boss, and I come home and uh, I say one or two sentences, and if Helen's at the, on the other side of that door as I walk in, depending on the day I had, I can see in her face how I'm coming across. I'm not thirsting and hungering after righteousness at that point in time. I can guarantee you that. I'm not. And this is what Jesus is trying to teach us. He's trying to teach us that being hungry isn't something that happens in an instant. If you haven't eaten all day, you're going to be hungry. If you haven't drank water all day, you're going to be thirsty. And the longer you're without, the thirstier you'll get. And the funny thing is, is when we seek Jesus, he quenches some of that thirst and some of that hunger. But it'll never be enough while we're here on this earth. Because it's a journey. Right? It's a journey that we all go through. And we need his strength. Just like at communion. This is my body. This is my blood. We do it once a month, but really, we need it every day. Do this as often as you in remembrance of me. Remember him every day. Remember him every hour. Remember him as often as you can. Thirst after him. 
He is the righteous one. He is what makes us righteous. Him and only him. Not our good behavior, not all the rules we follow. So today I just want to encourage you. Stay strong. Stay focused on him. Thirst after him. Thirst after him and you will be satisfied. Let us stand. Let's bow our heads. Who needs some quenching? Let's all bow our heads and keep our eyes closed. Does anybody here feel dry? Thirsty? Have a hunger? Feel like you've been in the desert for too long? If you're here, now's the time to pray with me. And we're all going to pray together. And then we're going to worship God. Because we're seeking His water. His food. Amen? Father, I pray for those who are here and I, I feel there are many. And if you are here, you just say, Lord, it is I. That's all you have to do and say in your spirit, say, Lord, it is I. I need you. And Lord, we pray for them. And we pray for all of us, for each one of us. Help us, Lord, to be poor in spirit, to understand how much we need you. Help us, Lord, to be thirsty and hungry for your righteousness. We want to be satisfied, Lord, and we know that only you can satisfy. And every day we need to seek you. Lord, help us to seek your presence, to seek your touch, to be completely, totally, unashamedly dependent on the Spirit for every single thing we do, every breath we take, every thought that comes into our mind, every word that comes out of our mouth. Let you be in control. We are that thirsty. And we are thankful, Lord, because it is through you that we are pure in heart. And I pray for those today who don't feel that. It is a promise of God. You are pure in heart when you are cleansed by his blood. And Lord, most importantly, help us practice mercy. Let us be known as merciful. Let people know that there is something different about us, not because of who we are, not because of what we do, not because of what we practice in being merciful, but because we were shown mercy first. So that if anybody ever asks any one of us here, whether at home, at work, 
at school, by neighbors, by family. Why are you so merciful? Why, why don't you judge? You know, they deserve this. They deserve that. Why are you so kind? At that moment, you tell them why. Don't hold back. You let them know why. Because I was shown mercy and I didn't deserve it. Amen. Amen.